Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere playing at luckylandslots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18+. Plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This is the Financial Sense News Hour. Now, here's the Financial Sense News team, Jim Paplava and John Leffler. And welcome back to the second hour of this special edition of the Financial Sense News Hour for our August recess. As Jim Paplava and his guest, Kenneth Jeffrey Marshall, continue the discussion of value investing. Jim. Value investors like Warren Buffett and Seth Klarman beat not only the stock market, but most other money managers as well. You might ask the question, why? What do value investors do differently from other investors? And if value investing works so well, why do so few people use it or practice it, including Wall Street? Joining me on the program today is author Kenneth Jeffrey Marshall. He's written a new book called Good Stocks Cheap, Value Investing with Confidence for a Lifetime of Stock Market Outperformance. Kenneth joins me now. Ken, on the day you and I are doing this interview, one of the top pages in the front of the Wall Street Journal was called Hot Stock Rally Tests the patience of choosy lot value investors. And it talks about value funds around the globe are on track to post their worst performance since the financial crisis, given the movement of all the FANG stocks. So what do we begin with that? If value investing performs other strategies over time and is out of fashion, with indexing being the rage today, let's talk about some of the vagaries that go along with value investing. Well, one of the funny things about the strategy is that it tends to outperform the most during bear markets. So it's when you see the overall market really crash that you'll see value investors outperform by six, seven hundred, eight hundred basis points. So it's no surprise to me that you would see an article like that, that you would see the suggestion that value investing is facing tough times because the stock market is rallying. That's a common situation. So you have these big rallies and the public gets enraptured with the market as they are today. I think the new bubble is in index funds, which is driving some of the valuations of the stocks that we see, Ken. I mean, you look at Amazon at 260 times earnings. You know, they've only made it a little over $5 billion in the company's history, most of that in the last couple of years. Who in their right mind would be buying these stocks? But that's exactly what's happening is money flows into these index funds. It's mindless investing. If you're an index fund at Vanguard or Fidelity, you have to buy Amazon at whatever percentage weighting it remains in the index. Well, that's true. If you have massive inflows into index funds, they're somewhat obligated to buy whatever index it is that they're tracking, including things that may be overpriced at a particular point in time. The company that you mentioned, Amazon, of course, you know, when it went public in, I think it was the mid-90s, basically said, we're going to lose money for a tremendously long period of time. And accounting rules were such that when it spent on its future, when it spent significant money capturing new customers and marketing programs, for example, 
it wasn't allowed to capitalize any of those costs. So you've got years and years and years of unprofitability. And it's only lately that it's actually starting to show a profit, but it's apparently paying off. I think that you know value investors today are doing what they always do. They're looking around at individual issuers, specific companies, and doing a fundamental analysis of what those companies are about. They make sure that they can understand the business. They make sure that those companies are good in the absolute sense, that they've performed well historically in terms of internal growth rates and profitability, that they're positioned well for the future with advantageous strategic positionings, that they're shareholder friendly, that they're not doing things like buying back stock at inflated prices, for example, that they have reasonable compensation schemes for executives and directors. And then they wait for those moments when those particular issuers have stocks that get cheap. And they may wait for years. But the thing that distinguishes value investors from investors of other stripes, they tend to be fairly patient when it comes to waiting for those moments when these great companies go on sale. And it always happens. We always forget that it happens during rallies. But if you wait, these great things do roll around. There's a security I have been following for, oh, I think I've been following it for about five years. And at some point recently, it happened to roll into inexpensive territory. And I bought it. And that's a very typical value investing approach. Can explain to our listeners, why do value investors focus strictly on stocks rather than, let's say, other asset classes like bonds or commodities, currencies, gold, things like that? Why is it mainly stocks that value investors focus on? It's certainly true that stocks are the asset class that value investors focus on primarily, specifically listed stocks, as opposed to private company stocks like shares and startups. And the simple reason is that listed stocks tend to do best over time. I mean, in my lifetime, the S&P 500 total return has had a compound annual growth rate of about a little over 10%. And everything else has basically done worse. You know, cash is at the bottom. Fixed income tends to come next. Real estate is somewhere between fixed income and equities in terms of long-term performance, but it just does better. So, you know, when value investors stick with stock, it's not out of some high-mindedness or religious conviction or something. It's just that it tilts probability in their favor. And of course, it's no surprise that stocks do best. This is something I talk about in the book. If you think about what a stock is, an ownership is an interest in a business. And there's no technical ceiling to how well a business can do. A business can please its customers, introduce new products, enter new markets. And in a way, it can just kind of keep marching forward. And that tends to benefit the owners of the equity. Now, contrast this with bonds, for example. There's an upside to how well bonds can do. I mean, bonds in the best case will pay the interest that they've promised to pay their owners, and they'll pay the principal back. But if it's, for example, a corporate bond, if the company has a great quarter, the company is not going to pay its bondholders a bonus just as some sort of favor. Instead, they're going to hopefully do intelligent things with the capital, and you'll wind up either with increased dividend payments, which go to the shareholders, or an ever-appreciating stock price. So value investors stick with stocks because on average and over time, they tend to do best. Now, I should say, not all value investors limit themselves to stock. You know, Oak Tree in Los Angeles does a lot of real estate, does a lot of fixed income investing. And it's an outfit that is sort of unusual and that it seems to be able to squeeze out performance out of these non-equity asset classes. And there's other practitioners as well that can do things with all kinds of physical assets, commodities, cash, 
But that's rare. That's very rare. And the reason I focus on equities in the book is because for most people over time, it's listed equities that tend to do best. And that's the asset class that value investors focus on as a result. In your book, you talk about, and let's explain this, there's a couple implications of it, the difference between value and price, and also can relate that price is directly related to risk, because this is just the opposite of what investors are taught when it comes to risk investing in stocks. In other words, investors are taught that risk is really volatility, when really risk is related directly to price, just as value is. Well, that's quite correct. The way that risk is taught, both in the industry and in the leading business schools, really confounds value investors. I think that you know the way to think about risk is the probability of loss. You could weight it by how much you could potentially lose, but it's essentially the risk of loss. In the book, I, of course, equate it to a runner on first base in baseball trying to steal second. There's a risk in being on first base trying to steal second. It's the risk that you'll be tagged out. And there's all kinds of ways that the runner can mitigate that risk. For example, the runner can do a leadoff. The runner can creep towards second off first as the pitcher winds up to throw. They simply narrow the distance they have to travel. The runner has a correct conception of risk. It's sort of the probability of a bad thing happening. And value investors think that way. Now, if you think about how to manifest that in an investing program, it's about paying less for stocks. And perhaps the best way to illustrate this is with an extreme. If you were able to buy some listed stock for zero, your risk would be zero because there'd be nothing to lose. And the industry's conception of risk wouldn't buy that at all. In fact, if the price had dropped to zero quickly from some high level of two, they would view that as extreme volatility and therefore an extraordinarily risky situation. And really nothing could be more absurd. So one of the reasons that you see value investors focusing so much on buying only when prices are inexpensive is not only because that tends to increase return over time, which should be obvious, but also that it decreases risk. And you're right, this is exactly the opposite of the way we're taught to think about the issue. I think the industry would tend to suggest that you can perhaps have higher returns if you're willing to accept greater risk, whereas a value investor would tend to think that by going for lower risk situations, you also increase returns. And it's a very limited number of people in the world that really get that. But once you identify that, once you get that, investing just becomes a lot easier. You know, the other thing you talk about in your book, which is something that's talked about in academic circles, if you take a finance course, take a course on investing, if you are enrolled in the CFA designation course, it's the efficient market thesis, which assumes that markets are always rational. In other words, anything that could be known about anything, whether it's the economy or the stock, is already reflected in the value of the stock. So there's no reason or need to do any kind of investigation on your own because everything that's known is already out there. And we've proven that over and over again. If the markets are rational, how can you explain what happened in 2007 or what was happening in the markets between, let's say, 1997 and the year 2000, where you had companies going public that didn't even have sales. Right, right. Well, 
value investors will concede that over time, markets are basically efficient. In other words, if you looked at the average price over some 10-year period of the stock of some company, that probably reflected pretty accurately the average worth of that stock over that 10-year period. But that these moments of extreme dislocation, like Jim, you refer to this 2007-2008 period where listed equities just saw their prices drop dramatically. You know, that was largely because there were a lot of folks that needed cash to make good on other obligations. And the most liquid thing they owned was listed stocks. So maybe in their own worlds, that was a rational thing to do, but it certainly created situations where things went on sale pretty dramatically. Now, those are rare situations, but they're enough to sort of shatter the efficient market hypothesis. The efficient market hypothesis has been sort of losing ground my entire life. When I was an undergraduate in the economics department at UCLA in the late 80s, it was actually known, at least in that department, as the efficient market theorem, which is a higher designation you give to an idea than a hypothesis. And it was the stock market crash that happened in the late 80s that sort of really caused folks to look at that with a much more critical eye. And it was about that time that the term got downgraded to efficient market hypothesis. So, you know, folks don't think like logicians. They're not computers. They're shaped by experience they've had. They are molded by particular frames of reference that they bring into particular scenarios. Actually, a wonderful book that's come out on the subject that sort of awakened people to this is Daniel Kahneman's book that came out a couple of years ago, Thinking Fast and Slow, which is essentially a collection of his Greater thoughts, but you know, in I think it was 1979, he and his then collaborator at Stanford, Amos Tversky, kind of made folks aware through their paper on prospect theory that you know the assumption of rationality was probably wrong. You know, it probably was not the right way to view human economic decision making with this assumption that they were rational with occasional bouts of irrationality. They sort of suggested the opposite, and he might summarize this work differently. I don't mean to suggest that he would describe it exactly this way, but their basic suggestion was, you know, folks are nuts. They start with all kinds of ideas, some silly, that cause them to reach judgments quickly, often poorly, and it's the moments of rationality that are rare. So that, I think, set people on a path to sort of looking at the sufficient market hypothesis idea much more critically. And to a value investor, the suggestion that you know, markets always reflect the worth of something is absurd. You know, something else that value investors emphasize, and you almost see it less so today in investing. I don't care if you take a look at investment courses in the predominant thinking, even in some money managers that go so much on momentum, which explains what you're seeing in the FANG stocks today, and that is mastering accounting. In other words, if you're a value investor, you really need to understand the three basic financial statements, an income statement, a balance statement, and also also a statement of cash flow. And from there, let's talk about, Kenneth, the importance of free cash flow, because that tells you, as a value investor, some of the most important things you need to know about a company's business. Well, it's one of two sort of numerator numbers that I focus on. Free cash flow is one, operating income is the other. But you're right. A basic understanding of accounting is, I guess, two things. Number one, not difficult to obtain. And to those who've studied bookkeeping or come up through an accounting course as it's conventionally taught, the suggestion that accounting is not that hard to master might sound sort of ridiculous, but it really is pretty straightforward. It's a language. It's a language filled with quirks and oddities 
And in the book, as you know, I dedicate a chapter to accounting. I think I try to teach it all in about 10 pages. And I think, you know, folks have said that while it's not an exhaustive treatment of accounting, which I freely admit, it does tend to relate that subject in a way that kind of sinks in. But, you know, I'm reminded, you know, Dad and I used to travel in central Mexico occasionally. And by that time, I spoke Spanish pretty well, and he didn't. Nonetheless, he always felt the need to try to communicate with the locals. And it always led to these absurd situations where he would make a request of some sort, and it would come out quite foolishly. And meanwhile, I could certainly speak Spanish just fine. The fact of the matter is, if you're in central Mexico, you either speak Spanish or you do not speak Spanish. Spanish is required to communicate in most parts there. With investing, accounting is like Spanish. You either get accounting or you do not get accounting. And to try to read through a financial statement and reach conclusions about a company's operating history without a good knowledge of accounting is a very dangerous thing to do. And I would actually say that stock selection itself requires a mastery of accounting because if you can't read and analyze a balance sheet, a cash flow statement, and an income statement, and you try to pick individual stocks, you will be swayed by non-financial factors, the attractiveness of the chief executive or how flashy the latest product launch is. And so whenever I teach value investing, whether in the master's course at the Stockholm School of Economics in Sweden or in the course I teach at Stanford University in Northern California, we always spend a good deal of time on accounting basics. And it's just a fundamental that you do not want to enter stock selection without having a good handle on. You know, you also talk about qualitative tools that value investors use, and that gets to breath, force, moat, and market growth. And Warren Buffett is famously known for investing in companies in what he calls a protective moat. So you don't have a lot of competition because even with technology companies, take a look at what happened to personal computer companies where computers basically became a commodity. And when that happened, the profit margins eroded tremendously for all the big computer companies, whether it was HP or Dell Computer. So let's talk about moat and also the possibility of market growth. Right. I mean, as you know, the way I like to think about a company's future is not so much by doing quantitative forecasts of what I think its next period's financial statement is going to be, but rather to think about the business qualitatively. And most is certainly one thing that I consider. Is there some sort of durable barrier that the company enjoys that either protects it from competition or makes customers just love it for a sustained period of time? And I think the easiest way to go about that is to identify the source of the moat. And I think in the book, I put forth six different potential sources of moat. One, for example, is government. Sometimes a company will have some sort of concession from a government that protects it. Uh, The example I give is Weyerhaeuser, the forest products company that part of its business is managing forest land. And some provinces in Canada have hired it to manage forest land in southwestern Canada over a 25-year period. Well, that's the moat provided by government. If I wanted to start a forest management company to also manage forests in British Columbia, you know, I'd have to wait, you know, some portion of 25 years just to apply. That's a moat. So in other words, whether or not a company has a moat is fairly easy to determine because when there is a moat, it has a clear source. Government's just one of the six examples that I give in the book. But the important thing... With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. 
This is your captain speaking. Uh, we've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandsLots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. I remember about modes is that most companies don't have one. They're very rare. Sometimes you can look at a company with incredibly strong historic financials, a very high return on capital employed, which, as you know, Jim, is one of my favorite historic operating metrics. And because of that high return on capital employed, you can conclude that they have a moat. Well, that's a mistake because some companies enjoy a very high return on capital employed simply because they were first to a new market. They have some sort of early entrant advantage that may or may not sustain, but if they have a moat, it may very well sustain. And there's other qualitative tools that I use as well. A very basic one, as you point out, is market growth. You just want to make sure that whatever products the company sells aren't going out of style. If you were buying in the early 90s stock in a company that owned music compact disc manufacturing plants, that's a problem because by then, folks were already starting to download music without the physical intermediary of the compact disc. That would be an example where the market growth was not promising. Other times, you'll see a situation where some new product is, you know, very popular and likely to remain so or just staying at some sort of steady state. The market growth piece is simply designed to screen out companies that are selling something that folks aren't going to buy. And you mentioned another tool that I use in my qualitative analysis, which is breadth analysis. That's very straightforward. It's a simple read on the breadth of a company's customer base and the breadth of a company's supplier base. In the ideal situation, you want a company that sells to a lot of different customers where no one customer accounts for over 10% of sales is my benchmark. And on the supply side, you want a company that sources from many different vendors or if it's single sources from some preferred vendors, has some alternative sources on standby so that it could switch if it had to. You just don't want to own stock in a company whose fortunes could be materially hurt by the actions of any single outsider. If you own stock in a company that had 50% of its sales to one entity, and that entity hires some goofy purchasing agent who decides to switch to someone else, well, that's going to be a bad day for your stock. And that's not the kind of company that you want to own. Let's talk about something else that I've seen over the years that could be very dangerous, and that is what I call technology disruptions. I mean, nobody would have thought with the advent of the Internet and Amazon, which started out of a garage selling books and tapes, that would disrupt the industry, including retailing, the impact on shopping malls today, the impact on well-known, established retailers, whether it's Macy's, Sears, or a Kmart. Or, you know, you take a look at what technology did to Kodak when you had digital photography, and then take a look what the smartphone did to digital photography when the smartphone came out. So what's the risk there? Well, disruptions are real. They really do happen. And sometimes smart entrepreneurs figure out opportunities to upend an industry to the advantage of the industry's customers. You mentioned Amazon. You know, when that outfit got going in the mid-90s, the fact was that book distribution and retailing was broken. The probability of a stock out was extraordinarily high. The probability that you would go into the store looking for a particular book and that they wouldn't have it, the probability there was quite high. That's an industry that had a lot of SKUs, still does, a lot of stock keeping units, a lot of different books you could want, 
And your typical bookstore, like a Walden Books or a Crown Books, which were popular chains at the time, you know, they carried a mere fraction of the total number of available titles. And so they could special order one for you, but that's not what you had in mind. You just finished the book you were reading and you want this new one and, and they don't have it. So that's an industry that was broken. And so I would suggest that some could have seen that there was a large opportunity there for someone. So these disruptions do occur. Now, most of the stocks that I own, Jim, as you know, I've owned for a very long period of time. The bulk of my portfolio, well over 80% of it by price, I bought in the 90s. And so my basic task has been simply not messing up. And when you buy those things, it's, of course, impossible to know exactly how the future is going to play out. It's very difficult to know how much some new technology could disrupt the business of stocks that you own. But you can do your best to think about it, and you can take a regular look at the performance of the companies whose stock you own and sort of just stay alert for any sorts of disruptions that are taking place. Let's talk about another concept that I think is really important. That is whether management is shareholder friendly, because we certainly saw that in the latter part of the 90s with many of the tech stocks that were just rewarding and handing out stock options liberally, basically diluting shareholders or some of the salaries that some of these companies, I can remember the battle over Disney at one time where its president in literally one year took one third of the profits of the company for his own compensation. (laughs) Yeah. I mean, as you know, I only buy stock in companies that are good. And by that, I mean companies that have been historically good, which is a quantitative analysis, companies that promise to remain good in the future, that is, have superior strategic positioning, check out well with breadth analysis, market growth, and companies that are shareholder-friendly. And shareholder-friendliness is really a consideration in and of itself. As I see it, shareholder-friendliness breaks down into four different parameters. One of them is compensation and ownership. I mean, you kind of want a management team and a board of directors that gets paid appropriately and that owns some chunk of the company, some material amount of the company. That's one of the parameters of shareholder friendliness. Another one is dividends. Under some circumstances, it's appropriate for a company to pay meaningful dividends. Under other circumstances, it's silly because the company has better things to do with the cash, like invest in high return internal projects. Repurchases is another parameter of shareholder friendliness. And this, these days, is where I actually see the most problems. In fact, I just finished an analysis of a company with my class at Stanford on a business that really fired on all cylinders. You could understand the business. It had strong historic operating performance. The company was well-positioned for the future in terms of its competitiveness and a most that it happened to enjoy. But it was in shareholder friendliness that it fell down. And it wasn't because of compensation. That was fine. Uh, It wasn't because of dividend policy. It was because of repurchases. They were doing significant repurchases, spending billions of dollars every year buying back their own stock. This is a large cap company. But it was overpaying, I think, by basically any yardstick. By my estimate, they were overpaying for their own stock by about 50%. And that's very dilutive to shareholders. It's essentially an overpriced acquisition of itself. And those things do not end well. And I'm quite surprised that they're doing it. And I'm hopeful that for the benefit of their shareholders, they will reverse course. Explain to investors and our listeners, how do you determine whether you're getting a real bargain when you're just looking at price? I mean, if a stock was selling at $100 a share, it's down to 80 One might look at that and say, well, gosh, it's $20 cheaper. I'm getting a bargain. In reality, when you look at the business, you may not. 
Well, as you know, I spend a good deal of time in the book on psychological biases that can really hamper long-term performance. And one of the psychological biases is called anchoring. Anchoring is basically benchmarking against the wrong baseline. And what you just described, Jim, is a perfect example of that. The sum stock could be trading at 100. It drops to 80. And so if you're falling prey to the anchoring bias, you see that drop from 100 and something looks cheap. Well, in fact, inexpensiveness only happens when the price is below worth, not when it's below what it was trading at the week before. In fact, there's I've seen many times there's great bargains in companies whose stock prices have doubled over the last year because what they were last year doesn't matter. What does matter is what the price is relative to what the company is actually worth. So to me, buying just based on price, either because of a steep drop or because of a low price earnings multiple, it's something I would never do. If there was a company that you know I understood, but had poor internal profitability, if it had only oh, a 2% return on capital employed, a business like that could never be cheap enough for me to buy. It wouldn't interest me under any circumstances. Because as you know, Jim, I'm a long-term shareholder. I own these things for decades. And ultimately, internal profitability metrics like return on capital employed, free cash flow return on capital employed, and some other things I talk about in the book, those ultimately drive your returns as a shareholder. If you just bought it cheap, you know, because the price dropped or it looked like a low price earnings multiple, that's a short-term approach that I frankly wouldn't know much about, and I think rightly so, because that tends not to work out so well over time. You know, one of the things I've seen value investors like Buffett or Klarman do over time is, let's say they buy a high-quality stock, I don't know whether it's a Coca-Cola or something like that, they hold on to it, they hold on to their shares, and then when you get into a economic downturn, as we did in the year 2000 or in 2007, they simply just add to their positions during those periods of time, which what you've seen Buffett do, like, for example, his holdings in Wells Fargo. Yeah, sure. I mean, I've done that. If you own something and it's good and you understand it and the stock price drops, the only appropriate response is to buy more if you have the cash available to do that. I think the silliest thing you can do is sell. You know, it's funny, Jim, the the industry that you and I are in has this instrument called the stop loss order, which automatically sells your position if it drops below a certain level. And I guess if short-term reporting is important to you, that may have some utility. But to the long-term value investor, you know, nothing could be more absurd. As I say in the book, not only does it deny you the opportunity to buy more of a good company at an even lower price, it guarantees you a loss. So as I say in the book, I think it should be called a make-loss order, not a stop-loss order. But that's something that the better value investors do. You know, value investors will tend to pay relatively little attention to what the overall market is doing. So if the market is tanking, but some company that they already own stock in and that they understand and that's good, if that price is going down too, why, of course, they buy more of it. Why wouldn't they? The biggest mistake one could make is to panic and sell like everybody else. My hope with the book is that folks will be able to do better for themselves and for their families and their loved ones, those who depend on them. When they make choices just like this, they won't panic just because the price of something falls down. Instead, what they'll do is they'll gather themselves, do their analysis, and see if there's something constructive and intelligent to do. Two final questions. When do you sell as a value investor? And the second question, where do you find values? 
For example, we know there's a number of screening software programs that you can find where you can put your parameters in in ferret out companies that have the potential to offer that value. So when do you sell and where are those places you do find value? Yeah, those are good questions. I don't sell. I never buy with the purpose of selling. I don't buy something at 100 and say that I'll sell when it gets to 150. If I buy something, I'm marrying that thing. I intend to be with that for the remainder of my days. Now, sometimes I will be bought out. For example, when I owned the BNSF Railroad, Berkshire Hathaway wound up buying that, and I had no say in the matter. Also in the book, I talk about owning Anheuser-Busch at one point, and that was acquired, so I had no say in the matter. But aside from buyouts like that, I don't sell. I do not have any interest in parting with something that's fantastic. Now, that policy has hurt me exactly once. And it's when I hung on to stock in the Coca-Cola company around 1998 when it soared to about $80 a share. And as I say in the book, that was as if every man, woman, and child had just signed a contract to drink a bathtub full of soda for life every week. <laughs> uh, that was too high. And the price you know, basically started a decade-long decline after that. It's come back just fine, so everything's good. But that policy's hurt me exactly once. But there's been other times when I've sold prematurely. And that's been a real mistake. And of course, your brokerage statement doesn't tell you that that was a mistake. If you sell something at a profit, your brokerage statement becomes a congratulations card. It tells you that you just made this much, that you experienced a 15% compound annual growth rate over however long you held the stock. What you need to do is this forensic analysis to see how it did since then. And in the book, I talk about Nike. I sold it too early. I continued its upward climb because it's an impressive company in basically all regards. And that was a mistake. So I don't sell. Now, you asked the second question, which is, how do I source my ideas? You know, I deal with idea generation in its own chapter in the book, but there's a couple things I like a lot. One of them is bad news. Sometimes there'll be some geopolitical event or industry-specific issue that causes many stocks in a particular sector or in a particular location to go down in price. And you know, a lot of the times the prices of some stocks just sort of go down unnecessarily or too much, and that can create buying opportunities. You know, other times it's a real issue. I mean, you know, when Volkswagen stock price went down owing to the budding emission scandal a couple of years ago, that was related to a very specific problem at that company. And in my view, that didn't represent a buying opportunity at all because it was a real issue and certainly has flowered into a bit more than that. But there's many other times where the stock price goes down owing to some bad news and it's either an overreaction or completely misapplied. So that's something that I'll pay attention to. I should say, you know, I don't think any value investor of conscience wishes for bad news to afflict some company. I mean, you can have, you know, real bad things happen and there's stories on that and stock prices go down. But headlines often emphasize the extreme nature of some event and these stories get edited to emphasize those even further. People overreact. They read it online. They have their brokerage account open in the other browser window, and they sell something. That's an overreaction, and that can create some opportunity. And there's other ways I source ideas as well. In the book, I talk about one of my favorite methods, which is simply serendipity, just paying attention to what's going on in the world. There was a hardware store chain in Sweden called Klaus Olsson, which is the leading hardware store chain in that country. And... The reason I became interested in it as an investment was because I noticed that every time I was in one of their stores, 
there were a lot of people buying a lot of things. And I'm not just talking about Saturdays at noon. I'm talking, you know, Tuesday at 10 a.m. is probably the slowest retail hour on earth. It was packed. People were buying things all the time. And so that was an observation that I made simply because I was alert. So you teach these courses, one at Stanford, and of course you've written this book. What would you tell investors who want to get into this or looking for it? It seems to me, Kenneth, the most important thing is to develop a philosophy, understand the philosophy, understand why you're buying a stock or holding a stock so that you don't get tossed to and fro with the latest fad, the news, like right now the fad is all FANG stocks and passive index investing. Every bull market always has a fad or something that captures the public imagination. So where would you tell investors to start with? I know you teach a course at Stanford, and maybe the best thing to do is read your book. Well, mine, but there's also another couple other wonderful books in the field. You know, one of the books that I recommend to friends is a book by Monish Pabrai, who's an Irvine-based value investor. He wrote a book called The Dondo Investor that, by and large, is extraordinarily interesting and very useful. And actually, he did a lot to inform my view of risk. That, I think, is a very good book. The Berkshire Hathaway annual letters are wonderful things to read. But, you know, value investing is a way of thinking. A lot of the people who have read the book have commented to me that they were surprised at how much it dealt with a mental orientation. They were expecting a series of formulas and calculations. And, of course, there's math in it. But it's a way to think about businesses, ownership, futures, that is the way the future will play out, and perhaps most importantly, one's own temperament, how you manage yourself as you make decisions that, if you do it right, yield fruit for a lifetime. Well said. The name of the book is called Good Stocks Cheap, Value Investing with Confidence for a Lifetime of Stock Market Outperformance. And its author, Kenneth Jeffrey Marshall, has been my guest. Kenneth, thanks for joining us on the program. Jim, thank you very much. Pleasure to be with you. You can subscribe to Financial Sense News Hour in the iTunes and BlackBerry podcast libraries or at feeds.feedburner.com slash FSM. Find more information about our guests at www.financialsense.com slash newshour. Friend us at www.facebook.com slash financialsenseonline. For our on-the-go listeners, you can access Financial Sense on your mobile device at m.financialsense.com. The Financial Sense News Hour is for informational and educational purposes only and should not be considered as a solicitation or offer to purchase or sell any securities. The investments, investment strategies, and investment philosophies discussed or presented on the News Hour each involve their own unique risk factors, which are not discussed on the show. Responses to listener inquiries are based on the personal opinions of James Poplava and do not take into account listeners' suitability, objectives, or risk tolerance. Financial Sense News Hour and its parent company shall not be liable for any financial losses that result from investing in any companies profiled on or advertising with Financial Sense or arising out of the use of any material on the News Hour. Be advised that you invest at your own risk. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club! 
Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, believe it by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.